0: Welcome to our podcast. Welcome. This is Film Juxtaposed. I'm Ben.
1: I'm Dina.
0: And today we're doing Barbie and... Oppenheimer. Welcome everyone to what is the biggest marketing combination for the summer of 2023.
1: Same day release of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and Greta Gerwig's Barbie.
0: And what a release it was. Um, I, we both watched the films separately, but we both did them in the same order of seeing Barbie first and Oppenheimer second. Um, I suggested it because I felt that I'd prefer to think about Oppenheimer when it ended and not have the stress of watching Barbie after, uh, and that order worked for me because I didn't think that, uh, seeing Barbie after Oppenheimer was going to, uh, appeal. Did you feel the order worked for you, Dina?
1: Yeah, I watched Barbie first and then Oppenheimer and it felt like a good order for me. It was almost um, something, you know, bright and fluffy and enjoyable, and then something a few hours later um, a bit more ponderous and heavy, really. It's about an atomic bomb.
0: Yeah, so I think the slightest difference between the two of us is that I actually saw Barbie in the morning and then Oppenheimer in the evening. Um, but I think you watched the films quite close to each other.
1: Yeah, we only had a three-hour gap between them.
0: Um, did you feel the impact of such a short gap?
1: Yeah, I'd say that I'm definitely, like, my knee hurts from sitting in the cinema for five hours.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm gonna join you, uh, as much as I really love View's lifting seats, which I think for this sort of, like, double screening is amazing. It's essential. But I have to be honest, my hips started to hurt on the second film, and anyone listening to this podcast considering doing this as much as we're cinephiles, I think it's important to stress that there are health complications with doing these things, and it is important to remember that these are just films, and the same day release was very exciting, but it's a challenge, physically, um, because Barbie is two hours long, and Oppenheimer is three hours long, and that's five hours of sedentary um, position, and as someone that's worked in occupational health, I just must have stressed to everyone listening to this, please consider your body and the uh, need for stretching and movement between the films. Um, I think that's something that's also very important when attending film festivals. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I completely agree. I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and by partway through Oppenheimer I was starting to get some pain from being sat for so long. So. You really don't have to watch them in the same day. And I think if I were to do it again, I probably wouldn't, to be honest. Um, it's, you're right, health comes first. It's really important to keep those things in mind. Just so you're aware, we're discussing the movie so there will be spoilers in the podcast. Barbie depicts Barbie in Barbie Land, um, whose life suddenly stops being quite as perfect as it should be and she has to go into the real world to fix the rift with the person who's interacting with her, as there's some kind of space-time continuum connection between the two. Um, And we see her journeys in order to fix that, and what happens when there's um, interaction between the real world and Barbie Land.
0: Oppenheimer focuses on uh, General Leslie Groves Jr., who has appointed physicist Robert Oppenheimer to work on the top-secret Manhattan Project. The film follows several investigations regarding the ethics of the creation of the atomic bomb and also the actual process of uh, developing the atomic bombs, as well as the aftermath of these events. The film, though, is a multi layered, linear and non linear presentation of the information, very much uh, sort of like in terms of its narrative strands similar to what it describes as the physical, uh, the physical reaction of the atomic bomb, where threads react and create other threads. So Barbie opens with a very, very strong musical sequence that follows another musical sequence. That follows another musical sequence. How did you find the music in Barbie, which is a, a big playlist of songs?
1: Yeah, I think... After a while, I got a bit tired. I think because the sound didn't seem to be. Um, maybe you can help me with the proper terminology, but the sound didn't seem to be like adding anything to the story. It was almost kind of narrating what's happening. Um, whereas sound in Oppenheimer is telling us something. Where we hear, you know, you hear those like crashing footsteps throughout the film, and it's only quite later on when you find out what that's from. So it's almost like an echo of something that's haunting him throughout the film. So sound is really telling us something in Oppenheimer. It's a narrative uh, device. Whereas Sand and Barbie is more of um, an aesthetic feature. Yeah,
0: you you definitely touched on uh, what I wanted to drift towards, which is Barbie, re- for me, recalled films from the 80s, uh, specifically sort of like, they, they've been since described as MTV films, but they weren't actually produced for MTV. It's rather these films had music videos that were associated with the motion picture release that played on MTV, and a lot of people tended to see the music videos as sort of excerpts from the films, and Barbie felt very much in line with that. The most obvious example for me would be Flashdance, where the, the narrative is interrupted for musical sequences. They don't actually... Add anything to the storyline of Flashdance. They are aesthetical, as you've said. Um, They they look nice, they sound nice, but the songs could be taken out of the film, out of context. You know, out of context, and it could be a music video that's themed in the film's style. Um, I think the most obvious would be Lizzo's song, which is at the beginning of the film. Um, which constantly refers to this, you know, the color pink and it's, it's when Barbie wakes up and she has hello, she says hello to everyone. That could have very easily just been a music video and that is identical to what Flashdance does with some of its musical numbers. And I guess what I'm hinting at is the use of music in Barbie is very similar to a musical. You could argue that Barbie is a musical in the grounds that the musical numbers interrupt the narrative. And the the use of music and, and sound in Barbie, uh, it's very contemporary of our current era. I think the film is going to end up representing the 2020s quite a lot through the way it looked and sounded, and uh, it's very much a piece of, of our moment.
1: In a way, it's a zeitgeist, I guess we could argue. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oppenheimer, though, uh, I mean, you've touched on it already, but... I'd noticed that the Oppenheimer was actually quite a quiet film. Uh, there's a, a lot of clean dialogue and music's used sparingly, uh, often paired with moments that are building up to either silence or a very strong wave of sound. Um, a very impactful use.
1: Yeah, it's used a lot more in line with the narrative and to bring emphasis to things, as you say. You know, bringing in sudden contrast between. Loud noise and silence, and there's that really impactful scene, um, after the bomb has been um released on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, when we see the sort of town meeting, when Oppenheimer reveals that it's happened, and we have those moments of like roaring, cheering, with stark silence, whilst Oppenheimer is sort of thinking about the impact of this bomb, um. So music music and sound is use a lot more to kind of draw contrast between things and to bring emphasis.
0: Yes. And uh, you've raised an interesting point. Oppenheimer uses music as a tool to unlock the inner psychological uh, experience of the characters, uh, specifically Oppenheimer himself. Barbie, I think, is more of a sort of uh, German expressionistic style of music, And and not in the context that it's German or expressionistic, but more like how German expressionist art would show the internal turmoil of a character on the exterior. In Barbie, I would argue that that's definitely happening through the music in the context that some of the lyrics of the songs tend to reflect what Barbie is thinking. Um, However, I guess experiencing but I would argue that it's not showing us her psychological experience it's just a ver- it's a different version or a different way of using exposition on Barbie so we're getting to see her we're hearing her thoughts and getting to see her feel her thoughts as part of her, her life's soundtrack where I would say the music in Oppenheimer is impacted by Oppenheimer's psychology so the soundtrack is is distracted it's uh, made ambiguous and abstract because of what Oppenheimer's thinking and feeling. I also I think there's an interesting element of uh narrator. There is a an a narrator in Barbie uh played by Helen Mirren, one of my favourite elements of the film. But also some of the music lyrics. Again I think the Lizzo song did it where they comment on what's on screen and it's It feels like a joke that's, like, played out through the music and I guess the biggest joke of it all was the musical number with Ryan Gosling on the beach when the, I hesitate to say realism, but the sense of realism of Barbie land transitions into a big musical number in a white stage, Um, which I guess at that point the, the music is used to unlock Ken's internal psychological thinking of him as a, as a musical Fred Astaire. I'm, I'm not sure. I was very confused as to what that meant.
1: Wasn't the scene on the white background during the fight between the Ken's?
0: Yes, which took place on the beach.
1: Right. Yeah, you're right. Actually, all of it was linked, wasn't it? Um...
0: So I guess the music in that place allowed us to unlock his internal ego.
1: Yeah. So somehow the movie about Barbie becomes about Ken.
0: Yes, I mean, that, that's something that I thought we were going to end up raising. That... Sorry. No, no, no it's, I think it's something that we have to discuss. Um, I was a bit confused as to why the film about Barbie was about Ken, and it wasn't like a subplot. It was probably about half the film, if not more.
1: And we see it right from the start when, um, when Barbie's going to the beach and it says every day is perfect for her, for her. Um, and he only has a good day if he sees her um so it's already placing importance on him and his feelings and emotions and
0: yeah i did think it was important that the film successfully showed the dangers of uh emotionally mature people that um latch on you know they judge their own uh success in life or significance through others and barbie did do that quite well but i was a bit confused as to why the film that is called barbie is about Ken really and his emotions? Because I don't, I don't feel like we walked away with many. Under you know, I didn't, don't feel like I understood Barbie's character much more at the end than I did at the beginning. If anything, I feel like if there is going to be a sequel, the closing scene unlocked a potential of who Barbie will become in the real world. But I, I, I sort of felt like this film actually should have been that they could have done a standalone film called Ken. I'm not quite sure why they made Barbie. Ken. In fact, it would have made more sense for this film to actually just be called Ken and released as Ken. It would have been so much more interesting in terms of like a viewer to have gone in and had the opening scene of a film called Ken actually be about Barbie. Yeah. That would have been an interesting segue for us to learn about Ken. But because I was a bit confused about the psychology behind this scene. So the big party that Barbie's dancing in, At the beginning of the film. The music stops when she says, uh, does anyone else think about dying? Which again, it was like such an interesting psychological thing to introduce into Barbie Land. I was actually very excited at the thought that at that point when viewing the film, I was excited at the thought of maybe Barbie being a film about depression. Um, And I was was excited to see where they were going to take it. But I found it very bizarre that the music stopped as she said it, but it didn't sound like anyone stopped a record or anything. It just stopped. And it had a fade on it. And I I was confused. I was like, is the music in Barbie's head? Can everyone hear Barbie's music? Is everyone suffocating under Barbie's soundtrack? And she sort of like brushes it over. And I think like they make some sort of reference that everyone's having a good time. Don't do this now, Barbie. And the music continues, but there was no references to...
1: Turning the music back on, yeah.
0: Yeah, there was no references to, was that music in Barbie's head? And... If it is, then I would be depressed as well. And But I was confused again as to what, what was the meaning of that scene because it's never really referred to again because, of course, later on, spoiler to anyone listening, we understand that the emotions and the uh, errors occurring, occurring in Barbie are, are tied with the person who's feeling those emotions that's playing with her. I was confused as to why we never addressed the mother's depression Later on
1: yeah it's just brushed under the carpet, and her res- you know resolution is that she suggests making a barbie that's for people who want to be a mum or don't want to be a mum, basically you know the, the ordinary woman quote unquote um which initially the exec is like, no, that's never going to sell and then a salesperson whatever says that would make us a lot of money, and then they decide that they're going to do it, and that's that's apparently the solution to her issues that's sort of what we're given as the end for that, except for the fact that Barbie's clearly part of the family at the end of the film when she goes to see her gynecologist, which was a funny joke. Um, it, it, we don't really get a clear sense of... I suppose in some ways it's not a movie about her, but we don't get a clear sense of what happens next with the family. We don't, but... but... If the mother's depression was causing Barbie's depression
0: and this is the film about Barbie, why did we brush the depression under the carpet? Why did
1: we Yeah, because if they're so intrinsically linked, then surely the mother figure needs you know to, to have that resolved and like a real something addressing her feelings in order for Barbie to be freed from this.
0: I was also a little confused by something else. In this in the film that the film Barbie is set in, in the real world one woman playing with a doll results with uh, imposing depression and cellulite onto Barbie and flat feet. But I was a little, I don't know, bothered by the idea that we... It wouldn't be just a single person playing with a Barbie doll that would result in problems for Barbie. If Barbie's the most, like, in, in this film's idea of the world, Barbie's considered, like, one of the greatest toys ever made, why is she not crushing under the damage that a million girls and, and women are imposing on her?
1: Or anyone playing with the Barbie doll, because it's not just women and girls.
0: Yes, no, of course. Very sorry. Apologies. But I, I'm a little confused as to how one individual was causing all this trouble to her is that because she was working at the company that produced Barbie does that give her a special power also she's a secretary basically i was i was very confused as to how she had a, an ability to do something to Barbie when the the woman who created Barbie exists as a ghost in the building i was i was, I was very perplexed as to where and how this all worked and i guess it, I, we were talking about music <laughs> but I'm I'm confused just at the level of why was the music playing in Barbie's head and everyone could hear it, and how does that connect <laughs> with how Barbie is having visions and reacting physically to a single person working at Barbie headquarters?
1: Mattel, we're talking about world building, actually. What that is?
0: Yes, we are talking about world building. And
1: I, I actually I've got one to add to that. That um, When Barbie and Ken go to the real world It doesn't seem to take them very long To go through all those different set pieces And costumes
0: Um, So many set pieces and costumes Very beautifully made
1: Yes, very beautifully made I love the aesthetic of Barbie It was very poppy and bright And I really enjoyed that Um, I do wonder about how much plastic And materials was used in building All these set pieces that may well just be thrown away again and paint.
0: There's a lot of paint that was used in that film.
1: And you told me something interesting earlier about the paint.
0: Yes. So the fluorescent pink paint pigment that was uh used to create Barbieland. Um the uh, vice president of global marketing at Roscoe said that um they used as much paint as they had. They they are essentially i I'm para I'm I'm reading a quote, so I, I it's not given any particular context, but um this individual said to the Los Angeles Times that the world ran out of pink paint. This is in in reference to when the film was in production in 2022.
1: That's quite shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah, My my point, um, it doesn't seem to take Barbie and Ken very long to travel over into the real world and same when Ken individually comes back and then also when Barbie comes back with the mother and daughter. However, when the execs from Mattel are coming over into Barbie Land. It seems to take them significantly longer. It's the next day when they arrive in Barbie Land. Um, so again, there's almost like a mismatch in the world building, which I don't seem to really understand.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder, is there a chance that Barbieland moves at a different speed when Barbie is there? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Both her and Ken have the ability to change time in the Barbie Land. They make reference to tomorrow or going to sleep and the sun sets just within seconds. But on the concept of world building, I do have to admit, I I do come back to this slight confusion where there's reference in the opening scene where Helen Mirren is explaining Barbie to us and Barbie wakes up and floats down from the building and toast pops out automatically and everything just moves as if someone's playing with Barbie. But then somehow the rules that were established for that opening sequence are just thrown out of the window so the the world building of barbie as exciting and creative as it is is very confusing shall we move on to a, a similar topic that's a sort of like we'll say a cousin themed topic artificial towns both films include artificial towns in barbie it's obviously barbie land completely different version of it, but there is an artificial town on Oppenheimer.
1: Yeah, Los Alamos.
0: Yes, which has a very particular strong context around, which I want us to discuss later on. But uh, in Oppenheimer, there is a, a pressure to get this town built in time, because it will allow the grouping of scientists from different regions of America to move to this location with their families to exist. But there's reference to the fact that the town doesn't quite... Function as it should when they first arrive. For example, Emily Blunt's character, she's playing the wife uh, to Oppenheimer with the children, uh, and she says there is no kitchen. Yeah. Um, and there was it was interesting how it was filmed because the sense of artificiality was very present for me in this location. With uh, there was these great sweeping camera angles where you would see desert land and then the town would appear out of nowhere with flashlights.
1: Which actually is very similar to Barbieland in some ways—the way that we suddenly see this town out of nowhere.
0: In Oppenheimer, there's an idea of a town that has a populace of very significant scientists who, after the work they've done in this particular artificial town, they re-enter American culture and they re-enter the American uh, space, shall we call it? But uh, so they they invade suburbs, and there's a sequence in Oppenheimer where we see what they end up doing and the jobs they're doing and the lives they're leading on, I guess, not what we were expecting after th- what their existence was in the, t- the artificial town.
1: And there's also something to be said for the fact that when Oppenheimer is being asked what they should do with the land, and Oppenheimer says we should give it back to the indigenous people because they have a claim to the land. Um, and I'm from memory that idea is sort of thrown away and there's something there about colonialism that we could draw out as well, about the fact that America is an invasion in and of itself as well. Yes.
0: But in this, yes, completely. But I I definitely got the sense that with Barbie and Barbie land, there is a weird underlying theme of a concern of uh, Barbie refugees they they seem to really want to keep them in Barbie land and they there's some sort of throwaway comment about the dangers of like a Barbie invasion on planet Earth but or America, because it, it isn't Planet Earth really in the film. But uh I'm a little confused as to what it was trying to tell viewers.
1: I mean, I think if we think about what that means, so like Barbieland itself is a matriarchy, it's not a feminist utopia. And so the idea of Barbies coming into America and changing everything, the room of execs that are discussing this is a room of white men from memory, right? Or at the very least, a room of men um, who have all the power. And so if we think about what it means to have a matriarch um, come into a room of execs and want to take control, it's talking about flipping patriarchy on its head and making women in charge of everything, which is what Barbie Land is. And the invasion into Barbie land is the idea of patriarchy. So I think in a way, the refusal to have Barbie enter into the real world, which is what the film calls it, is almost kind of warning against women having power, which is ironic with the film's meaning or like message really. Um and um, what becomes like a big plot point in the film, in a film about Barbie is Barbie trying to save Barbie Land from Ken's incel ideology that he's fallen into, where all of these high-powered women have suddenly become maids who are passing out brusky beers and um, in little sexy maid costumes. And so this film about Barbie becomes about saving from patriarchy and trying to return to the matriarchal structure, which Barbie then abandons. And then, actually, when we see Barbie in the real world, she's shocked at all the sexism and objectification that she's experiencing, so then...
0: But then she chooses it.
1: But then she chooses it, yeah. But I think that becomes... Because what I understood to be the end of it is because she no longer knows who she is. So faced with patriarchy, matriarchy, the invasion of patriarchy into Barbie land... She, she loses a sense of her identity when she loses control of her environment.
0: So is the film Barbie, which is named after the character, is the conclusion of that film that Barbie has no identity and we have yet to learn what her identity is? But I have to say the following. On the subject of what was in Barbie Land, Issa Rae as President Barbie was a revelation. Her performance is perfect. Her energy is her dynamics of her words. Every word she gave, I heard every single one. I felt it. I wanted to see how characters reacted to her. Sadly, we didn't get any reaction shots for a lot of what she said. Literally from the first sequence where she goes, Reporter Barbie, you ask me any questions. I wanted that interaction. I wanted to see where that was going to go. And... There was something interesting about Barbie Land, where there were several. There was a large cast in Barbie Land, and there were a lot of small roles like that. President Barbie, where I felt like I wanted to know more about that Barbie. I wanted to find out about you know Pregnant Barbie. There's two incidents where they throw comments about Barbie, you know Pregnant Pregnant Barbie. I was very confused. The first time was Helen Mirren making a joke, and I sort of felt...
1: about how they discontinued Pregnant Barbie. Yeah. Because it's weird,
0: as I quote. Yeah, and I, I, I almost appreciated. I was like, fine, do your single joke. Just like they did a joke about Sugar Daddy Barbie. In a film that is about Barbie set, as you said, in a matriarch world, no matter how artificial, we didn't even get pregnant Barbie. We didn't give her a voice. We didn't see anything about pregnant Barbie.
1: Her pregnancy is just ridiculed. I
0: was very confused. The ideas of ethnicity in Barbie seem a bit... I don't know, used as entertainment, I wasn't quite sure. Yeah,
1: I really didn't love the throwaway um, joke the the Mattel exec makes of I have a Jewish friend. Um, it didn't quite land for me, to be honest.
0: No, it didn't for me. I Also, I loved that there was reference to a Latino family, but I was a bit confused as to why the father was learning Spanish on Duolingo.
1: It's a bit embarrassing that he doesn't already know Spanish. Also living in Los Angeles, because Spanish is widely spoken in Los Angeles. California, I think it's like 50-50 English-Spanish. It's absolutely wild to me that there's this idea of a man living in Los Angeles, married married to a woman who we presume has you know a South American or Latino background, um, where the mother and daughter both speak Spanish, but he doesn't. But he's living in Los Angeles, that makes absolutely no sense. And they've obviously been together for
0: a while. I was, I was very confused, and I guess that goes back to that discussion we had earlier on, which is like, it's just confusing what the message is.
1: One thing I would like to add is whilst I appreciated the representation of seeing um, Barbie that has a prosthetic and Barbie that's using a wheelchair, they were very much just, sort of, we see those two Barbies very briefly. We see them when we have all the Barbies lined up and then another time when we see Barbie that uses a wheelchair in the dance sequence. We never see them again. And that struck me a little as tokenistic Um, and also you're telling me that there's a barbie there's two barbies at least that have um, mobility needs um, and yet barbie land looks incredibly inaccessible and actually if we think about that the two people who provide the most help or three people who provide the most help is weird barbie who is basically characterized as mentally unwell, I guess we could say, as well as being a little bit strange, Um, who they all bully and exclude, which doesn't fit with this utopian idea. So we have that. Then we also have the the mother whose name I don't remember. Um, We should really stop referring to her as just the mother. Um, We have her who is Latina, and then we also have President Barbie, played by Ysa Rae, who is a Black woman. And so we have these three characters who are otherised in some way, either through racial lines or representation, who are being, you know, a bit quirky, potentially mentally ill, and they're all helpers. And if we think about what that means to have characters who fulfil Prop's theory of, you know, the helper character, all being fulfilled by marginalised people, It's a little bit questionable. Like I I don't feel particularly comfortable with that. I had a mild feeling, well, not even mild, I had quite a strong feeling of discomfort when I left the cinema after watching it.
0: I think you're correct. I feel like it was an uncomfortable film to watch.
1: On the note of ethnicity, I would also just like to add the fact that Oppenheimer, the film, very much is aware of its cultural context in that moment of how people have you know, escapes Germany in the lead up to the Second World War and the Holocaust.
0: So just briefly to talk about Oppenheimer, because we've been talking a lot about Barbie. I think we can, like, very quickly, I'll just, like, a, I'll make general sweeping, like, moments, like, comments, um, the structure of the, the narrative is very interesting. It seems to mirror the atoms that bounce off each other. So the the actual strings of information that we receive as as audience members goes in every direction, and they explode and generate other ideas. The cast is exceptional. Robert Downey Jr. is almost barely recognizable. I am very very impressed by that performance. And there were many supporting roles in that film that were very interesting. Um, the
1: makeup department did an amazing job at aging Emily Blunt and. Cillian Murphy? Killian Murphy? I think it's Killian. Yeah, the two leads, really. Um, In a weird way, watching the characters age and then unage, um, was quite a helpful way of watching time pass, almost like time is represented through their bodies and how their bodies sort of carry the impact of their lives because I think Oppenheimer's character, Oppenheimer is in the last you know, the, temporarily, the last scene that we see him, he's aged more than Emily Blunt has. And I can, I'm sort of attaching the meaning to that, saying that it's because of what he's had to live through and the weight of what he's done done um, has impacted him in that way. Um, I'd also say in editing, the other scene that I really loved and how it represented this moment was when Oppenheimer has the meeting um, that's organised indirectly by Strauss, um when they're reviewing um, his security clearance and they're discussing his relationship with Florence Pugh's character and as the camera kind of goes around the room we see Oppenheimer from another angle and suddenly he sat at the table naked um, which is almost representing his vulnerability and how bare he is in this moment um, and then again it turns and we see him again and Florence Pugh's character is on top of him and this is obviously what we're seeing from kitty emily blunt's perspective um who's his current wife as they're talking about this affair that oppenheimer had and she's i guess imagining him fucking this woman and and it was just a very interesting moment how suddenly this intimacy was introduced into this public space um which at the same time is private it's an interesting kind of public private kind of moment because it's public in the sense that Oppenheimer is being interrogated and ridiculed and like dissected, but at the same time it's private because they're not actually making it a public like um yes, they're not making it a public hearing and that's obviously a move by Stross in order to get rid of Oppenheimer, um which we later understand. Um and so it's this interesting mixture of public and private and then also this intimate, vulnerable scene that we see from the perspective of Emily Blunt's character.
0: Yes, and and similarly, I found that a lot of scenes that uh, used perspective as a tool to unlock inner psychology were very disturbing, but also at times so layered in terms of linking an audience to a perspective. So I guess the two that come to mind is the test scene, where we are given multiple angles of the test occurring all at the same time. And the editing around that and the logistics of how it was filmed, um, it's very in, very impressive because there's a lot of information that is being transferred to the audience, very individual experiences of this test that's going to prove the project a success or a failure, but individual interactions based on what they're thinking and feeling, and it was very layered and textured. Um and I mean that textured very literally because there is no special effects as in computer-generated images in this film. So there is something very unique about the the explosion and it being photographically accurate and the logistics around this 18 millimeter IMAX camera is very, very interesting. Um, I, I was watching an interview with Christopher Nolan this morning who discussed the his choice of DP and he mentioned that this is a a cinematographer who's not afraid to lift this very, very heavy camera to do handheld camera angles. And that is very interesting. It's There's something about it that's very authentic. It's very tactile. And it, it's it harks back to a traditional style of filmmaking that the only filmmaker I can really sort of like pin to is John Ford or something like that where it's... I don't know how to explain it. It's very classical in a... I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's classical in the sense that it feels already part of a canon of films that people should watch from our era. Likewise, the scene we're up on, where there's the big celebration regarding the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the use of sound, editing, perspective filmmaking, the photography... And just to be clear, when I say perspective filmmaking, it's filmmaking from the attachment to a particular character in that scene we have two: It's Emily Blunt's character witnessing her husband enter the space, but then also Oppenheimer's experience of giving a speech in an area where people are cheering, and his vision of the explosion occurring at the same time, and the panic, and the sounds, and the images that were presented, it is beautifully orchestrated into a very complicated, multi-layered uh space and we return to it briefly with sound and flashing light and other scenes. So Nolan has referred to the to the memory that audiences have made whilst watching his film within the film space that he's using. It's very, very, very smart and very impressive.
1: And also the fact that throughout the film we see I think I mentioned this earlier, but we see and we hear um, the sound of the stomping in the lead-up to Oppenheimer's speech when the atomic bomb is dropped. Um, and so the film is almost haunted by that sound, which is what I said earlier, sorry. But it's, it's just very interesting how this is used. And I think I just also want to draw special attention to the way that in this sequence we see sort of the audience that are listening to Oppenheimer um, as they are, and then also this sort of imaginary space with the audience who are being impacted by the bomb we see certain faces with the skin kind of coming off and suddenly the room is empty and it's very interesting how we enter into this kind of imaginary space and we kind of see how Oppenheimer is no longer really believing in the words that he's saying Um, and his opinion on the bomb and the work that he's done has changed Um, and this also how the cheering is intercut with certain individuals who were crying at the announcement um, because they know what it means for the victims. Thank
0: you for joining us for Barbenheimer. Please subscribe and join us for future comparisons. Thank you.